6, starting in verse 45 and continuing. We've been following the story in the Gospel of Mark. Been following Jesus in his ministry, and we learned, uh, we saw some things happen last week with the wonderful feeding of the 5,000 and this uh, great miracle. The tired disciples uh, watching Jesus feed his sheep and use them even in their weakness to feed his sheep. And now in these verses, the story continues as Jesus leaves that place where, they, where he had fed the 5,000. It says in verse 45 and following, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the lows, but their hearts were hardened. Mark six forty-five to 52, God's word for us. I love this story. There's a lot packed into this, and we're going to dig into it. I love this account of Jesus' walking on the water. Perhaps one of the things that Jesus is known for in the broader culture is, is walking on water. It's kind of an expression that we use to talk about doing the miraculous, doing what is impossible. I love this story because of where it directs us, us too. Is my mic cutting in and out? I can go without a mic if I need to. This building was designed before mic, so we, we can work with, a, with or without a mic. But I love this story. I love, I love the, the intent of this story. It really shows us God. It really shows us God the Son. It gives us a glimpse of Him. We need to see God. We need to see God more than really we need anything else. And this, this story, this passage is about seeing God. The other week, uh, Peg and I hosted Jacob Young. And Jacob Young is a... A student at the pastor's college. He's in, interested in serving in New England, so he was here with us for the weekend. We had a great time. And uh, Jacob left his family, his wife Michelle, and his son Owen back in Louisville while he came out here. And his boy Owen's about three years old, a uh, precocious character. And, um, and one thing that made it easier for Owen to come, for, easier for Jacob to come here, was that uh, Jacob arranged to Skype with Owen. Because uh, Owen likes to see his dad before he goes to bed every night. He wants to, to just be with his dad. Now, the problem was is they were in our house, and for some reason, Skype didn't work. Uh, and I could hear the conversation as I was in the other room. And as, as Jacob was trying to get the uh, video to work on Skype, the audio was working, so I could hear what was being said. And he just couldn't, get, he couldn't make it work for some reason. It was, a, I think, a quirk with the, the new Apple OS that he had. But I could hear... Owen in the background crying. He was really just beside himself because he couldn't see his dad's face. His dad was away. 
away from him. He wasn't at home, and he couldn't see his face, and he just cried and cried, and he was uh, just out of sorts. And I think it was two nights, actually, that that happened. And finally, I think on the third night or at some point, uh, they got the video to work, and, and Owen was just all joy, all joy to see his dad's face before he goes to bed. You and I are like Owen. You and I need to see our Heavenly Father's face. You and I can only really make sense of life and have strength to endure the difficulties and perspective when we see God's face. That's what this story is about. The title of the message is Seeing God. It's really about beholding God and being changed, being transformed. When we see God, everything changes. So let's dig in. Let's dig into the story and learn about this. First, I want to talk about the distressed disciples. You guys have been following along the story. You know that, that they came back from this uh, incredible missionary journey. They went out and they were proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. They were healing the sick. They were driving out demons. They came back and it was just a, a wonderful journey, but they were exhausted. And so Jesus said, let's go away. Let's go away to a desolate place, get away from everybody because we're being pressed, hard-pressed on every side, don't even have time to eat, so let's go away. They go away to a desolate place, and the crowd follows them, and they can't get away. And Jesus' response is one of compassion. Uh, he wants to care for the people. The disciples are exhausted. They're, they're done with people. They're, they're thinking, I, okay, uh, I, we want to rest. And that whole story where Jesus comes through and feeds the sheep and pushes the disciples to depend on him. He tells, well, as we talked about last week, you feed them. So that they would recognize, one, their call, but two, their inability to do what they're called to do. So they would depend on Jesus. That's kind of where the story goes. But then what happens is that uh, Jesus sends the disciples away. He, dis- he puts them in a boat. He makes them get in a boat and go away. Now, we don't know all the reasons why in Mark, but if we flip over to John 6 and we see what went on in that feeding, because that same miracle is uh, recounted there, we see that the crowd was so affected by watching Jesus feed everybody, everyone had their fill, that the crowd wanted to come and make Jesus king. They saw him as Messiah and probably understood that this was a, a rehashing, a fulfillment of Moses, God using Moses to feed the people in the desert. And so they want to make him king by force. Jesus wants nothing to do with that. He wants nothing to do with being their king on their terms. Now, he is the king. He is the fulfillment. They got it right but they got it wrong because it was on their terms, their understanding of a military king and a king without the cross, perhaps. Jesus wanted nothing to do with that. And he wanted his disciples to have nothing to do with that, so he made them get in a boat and leave, go out into the lake, and then he dismissed the crowd, and then he retreated as well onto a mountainside. So the disciples go out onto the lake, and they row. They're rowing out into the lake, and... It goes on, it's late into the night, Jesus is praying. We don't know what he's praying about. Probably, one, he's probably praying for strength to resist the temptation to be a king he's not called to be. Probably praying for his disciples, that they'll get who he is. He wants them to understand who he is. He wants them to understand what sort of king he is. Not the sort of king the crowd wants, but something quite different. Perhaps he's just being refreshed by the Lord, but time goes on. And it says that at the fourth watch of the night, he sees that they're struggling. They're out on the lake. Now, we don't know whether he can see them 
literally, he can look out from the mountaintop and see them struggling in the wind, or, or prophetically, but a fourth watch of the night, that's like 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., they're out on the lake struggling. They're making progress painfully against the wind. So if you put things together, guys, they've been out on that lake probably for hours and hours trying to make progress to get across the sea. They're rowing against the wind, and Jesus sees them out there. They're in that boat, that boat that they were in earlier in the storm, and the boat that they're in often, the boat that Jesus teaches from, this boat probably about 25 feet long and uh, could use a sail, but also had oars. They're in that boat, they're rowing against the wind in that boat. What do you think it was like to be one of the disciples in the boat at that point? What do you think they're thinking? What do you think they're going through? Just think about it, okay? Jesus promised them, or didn't promise, but said, let's do a retreat. And they're exhausted. They're ready for a retreat. They've just uh, gone and had to feed the 5,000. They had to pick up the breadcrumbs. And there's still no retreat. There's still no rest. And now Jesus says, get in the boat and go back. And now they're in the boat and they're rowing. And they're rowing against the wind. I think they're probably thinking things like, what happened to that retreat that we were supposed to go on? Or, last time we were in the boat, the other time we were in the boat, Jesus was asleep, and the storm came. This time he's absent. When, when is this thing going to work? When are we going to have a, a, an easy boat ride? Or maybe they're thinking, you know, I, I, I just don't know if I'm up for this apostleship stuff. You know, it's just a roller coaster. We go out, you know, one day we're, we're delivering people from demons and healing people. And the next day we're rowing against the wind and, and we're having to face all this crazy stuff. Picking up breadcrumbs, rowing against the wind. I, I'm not sure if I want this. I think they probably were thinking something like that. Maybe you're thinking, no, no. If I were there, I wouldn't be saying those things. I would be saying, let's. Let's trust in the providence of God in our circumstances. <laughs> or, he gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Right? I mean, you would be thinking that. Maybe you would, and good for you. Good for you. But I think at least you'd be tempted to think those other things and say those other things. I know for me, I would be. Because when I'm having to row against the wind, that's where my mind goes first, not last. It goes there first. Yes, I perhaps eventually get to, he gives and takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. But at first, I'm like, Lord, what's the deal here? This is not what I signed up for. This is not what I expect. I can see the circumstances, and and I can get a warped perspective on life and very quickly forget all the good things the Lord has done and all the good things that he promises to do. I can lose perspective. I can panic I can get caught up in my circumstances. I can, I can be narrow in what I see. I can forget the Lord, just like the disciples do in this story. When I was uh, about six years old, my dad um, was able to save money from actually quitting smoking cigarettes and save enough money to buy a boat. He bought a sailboat. It was about a 14-foot sloop, sloop. Is that how you say it? Sloop? And it was an open deck type one. So it was kind of all open. It could fit about six people. And uh, he bought this sailboat, and I don't remember actually being in it as a little kid more than once. I think once was enough for me. Um, and, and this particular memory I have is sailing with my dad. And what he did is he had me, he had me sit and straddle the main, the, the masts, okay, the safest place in the boat. 
All right, I'm a six-year-old. I'm there uh, in the place that's the safest place in the boat, and I have my life jacket on, the little those orange life jackets you put around, and they're tied around me in like 25 different places. And I'm sitting there, and it's my dad who's sailing the boat. My, you know, my, my dad was a big man, and I was, of course, at six, very small. So he's this, you know, he's this giant before me. He, he's a great sailor. He knows how to swim. But I'm sitting there, and as if you know sailing, whenever the wind blows, the boat tips, right? And if you really want to catch the wind, you've got to tip the boat quite a bit. And there I am, sitting by the, the mast, and every time the wind blew, the boat would tip. I would freak out. I would freak out. I just remember, like, utter panic. It, it's basically, you know, I, it, it was if we were sailing in the perfect storm with 100-mile-per-hour winds and 100-foot swells. Every time that boat tipped, I would just freak out. Now, here I am. I'm in the safest place in the boat. I'm right there. My dad's giving me reassuring words. It's my dad. I mean, he, he's the superhero for a six-year-old. You know, he's right there. He can swim. He can sail. I've got my life jacket tied around me. Yet every time there's a little bit of tip, it's like, ah, what's happening? We're all going to die. I'd like to say that I changed after that, and those sort of things never happened after that. But, but I think that characterizes my life. So often, a little bit of a trial and my response is, we're all going to die. Often I'm on the boat. Really, I am on the boat. The boat of salvation. I belong to Jesus. I'm sitting in the safest place I could be, right? All believers are. You're in the palm of his hand. You're right where he wants you. He'll never let you go. I've got my life jacket of salvation on. The death and resurrection of Jesus. A sure promise for me of forgiveness and eternal life. I've got it on. I've got the presence of God himself assuring me. But the little bit of wind blows, the boat tips, and I freak out. Oh no, we're all going to die. Are you like that? No. I think so. I think we all struggle at times like that. We are all like the disciples. We are at times rowing against the wind, and those circumstances take over. They define how we feel. They define who we are. They define how we think about God. It's really the human condition and our weakness. And if you are like this, and I think you are, this story is for you. And God wants to speak to you through this account, this true account of the disciples and of Jesus. Now, there's more to the story than just the disciples struggling. There's more to the story than the disciples being terrified and not understanding what's going on. There's Jesus. That makes all the difference. He's on the mountain there, and he's praying for his disciples, perhaps. He's there praying, we know. Fourth watch of the night, between three and six in the morning, he comes to them walking on the water, it says. He comes to the disciples walking on the water in the fourth watch of the night. This is really an incredible miracle that goes on here, walking on water. Um, If you think about it, if, if, I don't know if you're like me as a, engineer, scientist types. There's all sorts of miracles going on here. There's a miracle of of defying gravity going on. Because if you normally try to stand on top of the water, what happens? You sink, right? Your gravity pulls you down. And and then maybe you can float on the water. Buoyancy plays there. And if you know buoyancy, you you displace your weight, basically. Which means for most of us, if we're in the water, it's about up to our chin or so. If you have a big bony head like I do, it's maybe a little deeper than others, but, but you, you float, you're buoyant. Also, there's the law of friction, right? 
Water is really slippery, right? Ice skaters, how do they skate? How do you slide on the ice? Because when you step in those skates on the ice, you're actually, the pressure melts the ice briefly. It turns into water, and you slip across the ice on water, not ice. I think, I think the coefficient of friction for ice is different than water. You wouldn't be able to slide if it were just ice. So water is slippery, so there's gravity, buoyancy, and friction. Jesus defies all this and walks on the water. It's a significant miracle in that he walks on the water. It's just amazing, and that's why in our culture it's kind of, you know, walking on water is doing the impossible. Jesus walks on the water. And then it says in the passage that he, he comes to them walking on the water and he intends to pass by them. So you might think, well, what's going on? I mean, what is, what's the point here? Walking on water. And then he intends to pass them by. I mean, what is it? Is this like X Games for God? Is he thinking, you know, what, I, what can I do just to kind of do something that's really daring? And, and, and is Jesus seeking to show off because it says he wants to pass them by. You know, is it like, hey guys, you know, there's Rowan, I'm walking, you know, I'm going to pass you by. Is that what he's doing? If that, is that what he's after? I'm just going to think up what miracles I can do to impress my friends. Not at all. You know that that's not what's going on. There's something much deeper happening here. There's a lesson that Jesus wants to bring to his disciples. You know, God could do anything he wants. It's actually wonderful to think he chooses what miracles and things to do for this purpose, to glorify his name, but in glorifying his name, to bless his people, to touch lives, to draw our eyes to him. This miracle is recorded because it happened, but it's recorded because God wants you to be blessed through beholding Jesus in his glory. So it's way more than just seeking to impress. He has goals in this. So let's dig in a little bit to what is going on so we might understand God's purposes. First off, in Scripture, water and the waters uh, represent things that are chaotic and dangerous. Water, for us in our culture, you know, the, the ocean is a nice place, right? We like to go there. We think of it often as tranquil, sometimes powerful, but it's always just kind of enjoyable. In the, in the scriptures and in Jewish culture, uh, oceans represent something that's dangerous and chaotic, something that's unknown, something that's capricious. You don't know what's going to happen when you're on the ocean. You, you could die at any moment. There's all this stuff deep down underneath the water that you don't know about. It's It's uh, mysterious. It's dangerous. That's a, an important theme to understand, and, and that will help us understand many things in Scripture. Partly why in Revelation it says there's no more sea is not because necessarily there's no more sea. There might be. But the point is there's no more of this chaos. There's no more of this, this dangerous unknown. And so when Jesus walks on the water, he is demonstrating something about his nature. In Scripture, God walks on the water. It says, and we can put these verses up, Job 9. It speaks of God. It says, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea and made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. Part of God's majesty is that he walks on water. He rules over the chaos. He knows the mysterious fully. He walks on water. Psalm 77 as well. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. This is referring to going through the Red Sea, but the same idea of God walking on water. He rules over chaos. He rules over danger. 
So when Jesus is walking on the water towards the disciples, it isn't just showboating. He's demonstrating in an unmistakable way that he is God who rules over all circumstances, who rules over all seeming chaos, who rules over all danger. There's other things in the passage as well that help us understand what's going on. It does say here that Jesus intended to pass them by. It's actually just two words in the original language. Basically, he intended, one word, a verb for that, and the other word is to, to pass. Often used to mean to pass by. And if you look in Scripture how that word's used, it's, it's helpful to understand the point here. There's a passage I want to show you in Exodus chapter 33. I think we have it to show this is a passage that uses the same word. It's, if you look in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it uses the same word to pass by over and over again, to pass. So let me read it in English and just listen for the word to pass. It says this, Moses said, please show me your glory. Moses is at a point in his ministry Side comment here. And a point in his ministry where he's looking to the Lord for strength. He needs the Lord. If I'm going to continue this, if we're going to continue this thing, we need to know you. We need, like Owen Young, we need to see our Heavenly Father. I need to see you, God. I need to see your glory. So Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Did you notice the multiple times where it says, I will pass by you, I will pass before you, I will pass in front of you. This is the same sort of language as in our story. Jesus' intent isn't to somehow pass by them saying, too bad guys, I'll meet you on the other side. It's to pass before them so that they could see him walking on the water. So they would behold him in his glory. In marked contrast to what they were beholding at the time. They were beholding their circumstances. They were beholding perhaps how they felt. They were beholding perhaps their disappointments and what had gone on. They were beholding perhaps their sins and their weaknesses. Jesus says, I want you to behold something else. I want you to behold something greater than all those things. I want you to behold me. I want you to behold me as God walking on the waters, the one who rules over all these things. Jesus wants us to behold him above all things. Finally, in helping us understand what's going on, as Jesus passes before them, they freak out. 
Actually, that's a common experience when people see God, right? They're a little scared, a little intimidated. Now, they don't actually connect, all connect at this point. They are simply afraid. They think Jesus is a ghost, a phantom, and they're terrified. And Jesus says to them, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Again, common sorts of phrases that God uses when people encounter him. But at the core of that is this statement, it is I, he says. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. That word is more literally translated, take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. Take heart, I am, do not be afraid. This is the the name of God himself. God is the I am. Yahweh or Jehovah, we hear. That is the word I am. It means I am the existent one. I am the ultimate reality. I am the one who always was and always will be. I am. And so when Jesus says this, he's walking on the water, he's passing before them, and he's saying, I am. It's clear and unmistakable that he is manifesting to them that he is God in their presence. It's what scripture, what theologians call a theophany. It's the revelation of God, of his presence. And and we see this throughout scripture. And God does this multiple times in scripture. He appears as we read to Moses. And he changes Moses. Moses goes down from that place and he has to veil his face because the glory of God so affects him that physically he shines. So he has to veil his face so he doesn't freak everybody out. Elsewhere in Scripture, we see Isaiah beholding God, being in his presence, and he's undone. He knows he's a sinner, and yet God comes and and provides and points to atonement for his sins. He's, He's confronted by the Lord. He's commissioned by the Lord. He's changed forever. John, in Revelation, encounters Jesus, and he falls down like a dead man. He's undone by seeing the glory of God, encountering him. That's what's going on in this passage. That's the point. That's the intent. That's the aim. That the disciples would be changed by seeing the glory of God in Jesus. This is a theme in Scripture. And this isn't just for the disciples. This is for you. This is what you need most. This is what I need most. To see God in His glory and be changed. John, 1 John 3, teaches us that when we see him, we will be changed. It says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But, when, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. At his appearing, we will see him in his glory, and it will transform us. It will change who we are. It will alter our perspective on life. 2 Corinthians 3 says something similar to this. It says, And we all with unveiled face, kind of alluding to Moses, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. I would submit to you that you and I live a delusional life. Let me say that again. I would submit to you that you and I live a delusional life. Now, I don't mean to say everything you think and see is false. 
There are many true things that you are perceiving, and I trust I am perceiving. But there's so much. There's so much we see. There's so much we interpret. There's so much that we perceive and understand that is untrue and warped. We do not see clearly. We do not see things as they are. We interpret life in ways that are wrong. And often our experience of life comes through, really always our experience of life comes through our interpretation of life. How you feel about yourself, how you feel about your circumstances, all has to do with how you interpret them all. And I must say, looking at my own life and being a pastor, doing a lot of counseling and care for people, we interpret so many things improperly and wrongly. We live a deluded life. Perhaps you've seen the movie The Matrix, not necessarily recommending it, but it has many interesting and redemptive themes in it. And if you know the story, there's this guy, Neo, and he lives in The Matrix. He thinks he lives in 20th century America. And, and through a number of, of circumstances and so forth, he starts to question that. He starts to think, maybe this isn't true. Maybe there is such thing as the matrix. And, and the way the storyline goes, he ends up meeting these people who, who guide him and they end up giving him this pill, the, the red pill. You remember, you take the red pill or the blue pill if you saw the movie. He takes the red pill and, and that pill somehow removes the veil of how he sees things. And he realizes that the truth is that he doesn't live in 20th century America. He's actually a prisoner of post-apocalyptic evil robots, more or less. And he lives in their world, and they control his mind somehow and create this perception of reality that he's assumed was truth always. And it isn't until the red pill comes that he realizes it's false. I think we are a lot like Neo. We have perceptions about what's important, what, what we should think about ourselves and reality, how we should feel about things, how we should live. We have these perceptions. Yes, indeed, many of them are true, but so many are false. Particularly when we find ourselves rowing against the wind, like the disciples, we can start interpreting things in a false way. We start thinking in terms of disappointments and trials and, and this person or that person who did me wrong. Or where is God? All those things, those interpretations are often diluted. What's the answer? What is the red pill? God and His glory. That's the red pill. Beholding God. Beholding Jesus Christ. In his glory. That's what the disciples needed here. They needed to see this ultimate reality. They needed to see God and who he is. They needed to have their perspective changed. They needed to have their reality altered by not beholding the wind and the waves and their disappointments, but beholding Jesus who walks on the water, who is God in the flesh, who rules over all, who is the I Am. To behold God who rules over all creation. A God who designs circumstances and hardships to work good for his people and glory for his name. A God who came to the earth as a man to live a righteous life, to live humbly and in love, and then would take that life and offer it up on the cross to pay for sinners, to pay for our sins. That's, that's incredible. That's just amazing. I would, if I were given, you know, how would I create a God that would be glorious? I wouldn't do it that way. This is glorious. This is the wisdom of God in all his glory. He would come to die for our sins. 
So that if you behold Him and see His glory and turn from your sin and self-effort and turn from your self-defining of reality and say, you know what, I've been wrong. What is most valuable is not what's most valuable. God's perspective is entirely different. If you would see Him in His glory, in all of His glory, and particularly as that glory is most shown in his death and resurrection, dying for our sins, to pay their penalty, to satisfy the holy justice of God. For the wages of sin is death. Our sins are cosmic offenses against a glorious God. They are insane. They are ridiculous. They imprison us. And yet he came in his glory to free us, to provide for forgiveness. That if we would look to him and put our faith in him, we would find forgiveness in him. And and it is promised and guaranteed in his death and the fact that he rose again on the third day, alive forevermore. This is God in his glory who is presented to us. And when we put our faith in him, he becomes our God. Our sins are paid for. He is the one who's there, and he is committed to us to show us his glory and change us. What you need more than anything else, more than answers to your circumstances, more than satisfactions to your disappointments. Now, God cares about all that. Don't get me wrong. He's amazingly kind and compassionate. But you need something better than answers to your circumstances. You need to see the glory of God. You need to see God. That's what you need most of all. And in seeing him, to know him. And to be changed. To be changed forever. To have your reality adjusted by him. That's what this story is about. That's what's going on here. The disciples need to see God. You and I need to see God. For when we see him, everything changes. Now the disciples, it's interesting to note, didn't get it quite, at that point. If you read the parallel passages in John 6 and in Matthew 14, you'll see actually that they get it somewhat. But Mark actually doesn't emphasize that. Mark doesn't talk about Peter. When I read earlier, Peter coming out on the water, he ignores that. Why would he do that? Why would Mark ignore that? Because Mark actually, throughout his gospel, wants to emphasize the weakness of disciples. Our series is called Amazed because it's about being amazed by Jesus and by being amazed to put our faith in him to follow him. But that following is an imperfect following. That's, that's the lesson in Mark. That's why weakness is portrayed more often than strength in the disciples. That's why this story doesn't include Peter's bold step of faith, even though he fails. To emphasize the point that we are weak. We miss it. And yet, Jesus is amazingly patient with his disciples, isn't he? They, they miss who he is. This is the, you know, whatever time that they have seen him do a miracle. And these miracles are incredible. And yet he's still with them. He still gets in the boat with them and cares for them. Yet their hearts were hardened, it says. That's a phrase used in scripture for people who do evil things like Pharaoh and the evil kings of Israel. To have your heart hardened means to be resistant. It means to be opposed to God. These guys are, in part, opposed to God. Their hearts are hard, and yet Jesus is patient with them. That's encouraging for me. I hope it is for you, too. Because the reality is we struggle. We struggle to behold God. And it's good news to know that he's more committed to showing his glory to us than we are committed to perceiving his glory. He is committed to to 
changing our lives and transforming us in the show forth of his glory. And so there's something in this story that I want you to get. I want you to get that he is patient with you in this. And that's a good thing to recognize. He's patient with me. I fail. I panic. I freak out when things are hard, yet he's patient. But he's failing in his commitment to change me, to show us his glory. And so let us understand that as well. Let us, let us pursue seeing him in his glory. Let us be committed to seeing him more clearly and being changed in our perspective and being altered in our reality. Let us take the red pill. Let us see Jesus. Let us remember Jesus crucified and risen so that we would see the glory of God in Christ and be changed. If the banker come up as we close. I hope this is clear and helpful. And I can't overemphasize the importance of this truth captured in this this section of Scripture. I can't overemphasize how key it is for your life in the Lord. I can't overemphasize how important it is for you as you deal with your circumstances. I can't overemphasize how important it is for you as you deal with how you perceive God, how you perceive yourself, how you perceive others. And so my question would be, what do you see most in your life? What are you perceiving most of all? Your circumstances? The wind you're rowing against? Your disappointments? Your failures, the failures of others? Or Jesus in his glory? And you may ask, well, how can I grow in this? How, what can I do about this? I, I know I, I don't do it, and I need to do it. And there's lots of answers I could give you. There's lots of ways to perceive him. He's given us his word. He's given us the Holy Spirit. We perceive him through that. I could talk about the importance of personal Bible study, personal Bible reading and prayer and all those things. And, and, I, and all those are important. But I want to emphasize something in closing today, an application that I don't always do. I think that we often perceive the Christian life in a much too individualistic way. We think it's about me and my Bible before God, and it certainly is. God cares about you and your Bible. But the seeing of Jesus doesn't just come through that, and perhaps doesn't even come chiefly through personal Bible study and prayer. If I understand the Scriptures right, the seeing of Jesus comes through the church being together. The seeing and beholding of Jesus comes as we meet in his name on Sundays, as we gather during the week, as we gather with two or three or whatever the number be, as we gather in small groups. That's where as we fellowship together, God makes himself known to us. So I believe that corporate Bible reading and study, corporate prayer, corporate fellowship, and actually corporate outreach as well are essential ways to see Jesus. So do you want to see more of Jesus? Do you want to have your perspective changed? Then gather with God's people. You may be thinking, well, well, show me that in Scripture. Just give you a couple verses. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. It says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. So the writer of Hebrews does, wants them to avoid having a hardened heart. He wants them to avoid sin. He wants them to avoid... Not seeing Jesus. 
So he says what? But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How are we protected from deceitfulness? How are we protected from hardening of heart? How are we protected from blindness to God? By other people coming alongside of us and helping us, asking us the hard questions, encouraging us, exhorting us. We see Jesus when we are committed to walking together. Another verse to see Jesus, to put him on display, to put him on display to us and to the world comes by being together according to John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. So also are you to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. When you guys get together, when we get together, we love one another, and through that coming together and loving one another, Jesus is shown. It's shown so that all men will know where his disciples. They would look and say, hey, there's something different about these people. I see Jesus. These must be his followers. I could show you other verses as well. I want you just to consider that. And I know many of you are involved and you're connected. That's great. There's some who are not connected well enough. And perhaps as you think about your struggles, you're thinking, I just need to read my Bible more. Oh, please do. Read it as much as you can. But for you, I think perhaps what you need to do is plug in to this church or another church more. To be at small group, to develop relationships, to walk together, to do outreach together. Because that's also how we see him as he works through us in mission. So I just want you to consider that as a way among many to see Jesus more. See, truly seeing Jesus changes everything. We need to see him. He wants to show himself to us. Let's pray. Lord, as Moses prayed, I pray, we pray, Lord, show us your glory. Open our eyes to see your glory. Show us your glory through Christ crucified and risen through Christ living among us, dwelling among us, speaking, building us up. Lord Jesus, show us your glory. Change our lives and glorify your name through this, we pray. Amen.